there is no shame. There's nothing wrong in, in doing other work. And I've done all sorts of jobs before. I've been, you know, a mover, just doing removals. I've done work in call centers and, you know, all work is, is legitimate at the end of the day. And that funds funds your life and, and your lifestyle. You, you keep body and soul together and every so often you get a bit of time to, to work on your craft. Yeah. You are listening to Geekdom in Powers. Welcome back. My name is Guy Hasson and this is Geekdom in Powers, the podcast that highlights the things which are less highlighted in the geek world. Today, we talk to science fiction author Tendai Huchu. He's a Zimbabwean author who lives and writes in Scotland. His first book, The Hairdresser of Farah, has been translated into multiple languages. His most recent book is called The Library of the Dead. And the next book in that series is due out next year. So, here's what you're going to hear. This starts out a normal conversation and slowly becomes a deep, deep dive into the nitty-gritty of falling in love with reading, learning to write, the process of writing, in a way that I really have never heard in other interviews. It's not about technique, but about what authors are and what they go through. This episode is a long one because we had such a fun time talking and I had to cut the episode at around an hour or so and then we, we just kept on talking for another 20 minutes. And in editing this, I thought for a long time about whether I should keep that part in or cut some of it out because although it's fascinating and we do cover a lot of stuff, it does begin with him asking me questions and me taking the time to answer them and I'm not the interviewee. So I wondered if I should keep it in or not. I did realize that any part I take out will be missing from the conversation and the conversation won't make sense. So I kept it in and I kept all of it in. And so if after we say goodbye, it gets tiresome for you, jump ahead five minutes till I stop talking and he starts talking again. Uh, I kept it in because... At the end of the day, it's interesting. It's a peek into the life of authors and it's real because the interview was basically over. And real is important. Authenticity is important. So here it is, the full conversation with Tendai Huchu. Enjoy. Yeah, we had the fast, well, I think one of the fastest countries, if not the fastest country to get the vaccine and get it to the most people. And then the corona started it looked really weird because a lot of people were getting the vaccine and it kept going up. And then suddenly it started dropping and we kept and we returned to almost completely normal life. That's brilliant. And now the Delta uh, variant is coming and now yeah. there's more, it's spreading and there's talk about this being uh, um, the vaccine wearing off in time. And we're not sure if it is or if it isn't, if you need a booster shot, you don't need a booster shot. In any case, we're slowly returning to um, more and more masks and more and more uh, prohibitions. Um, but overall, you can walk around. We walked around for a few months with almost no worries. Well, that, that's, that's brilliant. I mean, I mean, things are just opening up here. You still mainly need masks in shops and on public transport and things like that. Yeah. 
but um, there are fears because the Delta variant is also sort of resulting in higher cases. So who knows how that's going to turn out. And you're in Scotland, right? I am, yeah. So how is Scotland uh, different from uh, England below it? From England? In, in, um, in how it's treating the, the virus, I mean. There are sort of like these regional differences in, in terms of the approach for opening up the pace of, of, of things and and the like. Um, I think through it all, Scotland had marginally better numbers than, than England because of sort of like the local administration. But because the borders are usually, you know, pretty open, you, you, you wind up with roughly the same the same effects. And I think England has been more keen to, you know, to open up uh, certainly the government there than sort of the local administration in Scotland. Yeah. 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 And we went, to, uh, my wife and I went to a movie in the theater for the first time, like two weeks ago. Uh, it was Brilliant. amazing to sit in the theater with people sitting slightly a bit far from you, but it was uh, amazing to return. At least, at least. But yeah, thank you for getting me to, to do this, Guy. I, I sort of, you know, looked up some of um, your stuff online and, and you seem to do quite a few different things from filmmaking. There was something about a short um, sci-fi film and then there's the short stories and, and, and the novels as well. You, you've got quite a range. Uh, yeah, I was actually in... Oh, I can have my voice on it. I was uh, in uh, one of the, the world's uh, best SF uh, in the first book. And I saw you well, the last one. Is that the one edited by Lavi Tida? Yes, it was, yes. Fantastic. Uh, that is a fantastic collection, yeah. Yeah, and I like the one you're in, which is also amazing. It's amazing to see how back when there was only one, it was hard to find different uh, science fiction authors. Uh, I spoke to Levi a lot during that time, and he was, he was, he had this website about bringing awareness to world uh, SF, fantasy and science fiction uh, um, authors and creators, and uh, it was really hard. And it was, it's hard to imagine today, even though everything is not yet equal, how unacceptable it was to have a writer and how unique and strange to the ear it was to have a non-American, non-UK, non-Australian uh, uh, voice in science fiction. It, it, it was, and, and anthologies like, like that and, and the work Lavitila did, you know, it's pioneering because there were always people working within the genre, but it almost felt as if in isolated pockets. So maybe someone would break out and you'd hear about them. Again, it was always mediated through sort of the, um, the Western presses, you know, the, the, those sort of um, the traditional gatekeepers yeah. as it was. Um, and, and I know certainly from my side working in, in African sci-fi that there was an interest, but one of the most difficult things was finding a home for your work. So if you find the presses on the continent tended mainly to, to focus on literary fiction and then to get a slot of in, in Western publication houses was difficult because you would send your work out and they'll say, well, we already have another black writer or something ridiculous like that. And it's, yeah, yeah but 
is my work any good or not? You just didn't know, right? For them, they've ticked their box and, and, and they're done with you. So I remember when Afro SF first came out, um, I was in that anthology by, um, it was edited by Ivo Hartman and it was a huge hit and loads of people bought it. Um, it was well reviewed. Readers were keen for it because again, at the time, if, if something like that came out, there was a lot of interest. Um, you've indicated how it's different now because there's a lot more of these different platforms out there. But before it, it, it was very difficult, A, to find a home for your work and, and B, if you were interested in that kind of fiction to find it anyway. Yeah, and there was also uh, dilemmas inside the countries from which you came. At least, even before, you know what, even before that, I remember I started writing, I started writing in the late 80s when I was just a teenager. And then, you know, I started get, being kind of good in, in the beginning of the 90s. And I knew then that you, the hero had to be American, white, straight, male, for people to even listen to, 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 to begin to read the story. Or Americans wouldn't, want, wouldn't read the story or wouldn't identify with the uh, author. That's the way it was then. Um, and I do think it's changing, um, but are you feeling that it's changing? Let's make it into a question. I do feel it's, it's changing in a way. Um, I mean, the situation that was there before, I, I almost feel that there is a sense in which because of the gatekeepers within the industry, right? you prime people to read certain things. So for example, in the eighties, there were all these action men movies with Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sly Stallone, you know, these really hunky, you know, um, characters, right? Doing amazing things. So if you were asked to watch that with a female character, you'd automatically have a reaction to that because you've been primed to accept a certain kind of figure on your screen for that particular genre. And, and I think that's one of the issues we find now with the reception of female superhero characters. It's that we haven't been primed to accept them in the same way we have for male superheroes, which sort of have a slightly um, longer history on our screen. Um, and I do find that things are getting better now because most readers, one thing I feel, most readers are pretty gregarious. If, if a work is good and the story is interesting, most readers will go for it, you know, and, and, and they will enjoy it. I, when I started writing, I was really interested in 19th century Russian literature, which is about as far removed from the Zimbabwean reality as you can expect. But even within those works, you know, I found all these commonalities in terms of the things those different authors were interested in. Um, I've always said to people, I think Dostoevsky is, the great Zimbabwean writer, because when I was in my twenties and getting into that stuff, that it really spoke to me. And I think literature works on that level. So now things are a bit better, but I do have a bit of this reservation, which is almost the feeling that the works that are produced or, or, or that are published tend to be of a certain bent. Right, so you're kind of pigeonholed in 
whatever it is, the market still thinks it can sell, which is generally stories that are, um, I don't want to use the word preachy, but that, that are generally exposing some kind of social justice theme, as opposed to, you know, you're most likely to get a slot with a story that does that, as opposed to just a rollicking, you know, fun, entertaining piece of, of, of fiction. And that certainly is the feeling that I get. I mean, even when we look at, at the movies that, that are produced, uh, generally featuring minorities, they tend to have that kind of message as opposed to just people living their lives and doing things that, you know, your conventional white uh, heterosexual characters are allowed to, to do on, on screen. Does that make any sense at all, Guy? It does, it does. It connects to, I think, in, in Israel, we saw uh, um, there was, in the beginning of the 2000s, because of the internet and people finding themselves, and there were, uh, there were different competitions of uh, writing science fiction. Uh, and so suddenly, when I, when I my first book came out, uh, I was not aware of them at all. I became aware of them the instant it came out, and suddenly there was a convention. But there was another author who came in from the community itself, and she uh, and she 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 published a book exactly the same time as I did. And then there was another guy who said, you know, I would finance uh, um, a magazine, a paying magazine, science fiction magazine for original stuff from Israel. So suddenly, when there was financial incentive for people to write, people would write. You, you, you found more people. And then even though, you know, people can't, get, can't live off getting paid a few cents for a award in one magazine, but, um, but the dilemma that existed in the beginning and doesn't exist now because this has been happening for 20 years now is that do you just do the same type of science fiction, just change the names, two names that exist, you know, in this country or can you find something that is unique to this place or to you, the writer, who comes from this place? Like, for example, for you, I can see, like, um, uh, The Library of the Dead. It is about someone who comes from Zimbabwe and lives originally and is in, in Scotland. That's something that's specific to you, right? Yep, that's right. Um, I think... That's always going to be a tricky question. And, and, and I'm really glad to sort of hear the story that you tell of almost this opening up of, of um, Israeli sci-fi. Um, and there's always this thing that happens that when the platforms are there, you, you quickly realize that there's a lot of authors that want to be working in, in these areas. One of the most interesting things um, for me, sort of just looking at at the production of sci-fi in, in Africa as a whole is you find a pretty curious thing that most of the practitioners, not all, um, but a, a sizable number, let, let me not say most, a sizable number have worked in a different genre. So for example, I was working in, in mainstream fiction before I made this move into doing genre SFF. Right. Because, again, at the time, if, if I looked at this is stuff that I was interested in, but could I place it anywhere? It was much, much harder than than it is now. 
you've also had the emergence of magazines, really good quality magazines. There's Omenana, which is based in Nigeria, but takes work from writers from all across the, the African continent. And they've even been trying to open up now to say, okay, we've mainly been concentrating on the English speaking um, parts of Africa, but if we could also include French speaking parts and they're gradually trying to, to increase the range that they have. But once that platform emerged, you started getting a whole diversity of writers and the stories that they tell, I certainly feel are maybe a little bit more, a little bit different from the ones that you might find being published in, say, the Western publications. I mean, the good thing, though, is now um, you will find quite a few every so often in F&SF or Clark's World or, or those kind of sort of leading sci-fi magazines. You will get a lot more different writers from, from the continent. Um, but before that, I, I remember sort of like the excitement that we had when um, Lauren Bukis, who's a South African writer, won the Arthur C. Clarke Award for Zoo City. And it, it was kind of like this, this wow moment that th this is someone who's getting recognition and she was working, you know, from South Africa. And, and I think it is moments like that, that that attract more people into the genre. For me, doing something... Um, trying to do something um, fairly unique um, with the library of the dead. Um, again, that whole Scottish-Zimbabwean connection, which, you know, is, th there isn't a lot of, of Scottish-Zimbabwean writers working at the moment, I can tell mm -hmm. you that. Um, but again, I, I will still sort of concede that if you look at the template of the work that that I pinched in order to do the library for the dead. It was something that is a little bit recognizable, which is Rivers of London by Ben Aronovich, um, which is a very popular series. But that particular series in itself, I, I think where Aronovich really, really succeeds is, you know, the lead character is, you know, of uh, dual heritage and the characters within the series reflect London, which is very cosmopolitan and very diverse. But again, it doesn't make a show of it. It's just, this is how London is. And, and hopefully those are the kind of works that, that will become a lot more, you know, prominent as, as, as time goes. Hmm. What you said just like a few seconds ago, leads me to a question that I never thought of. Um, I'll give you a bit more of background. Do you know uh, Kugali, the Kugali website, who is working about creating, they've been working for years and now about creating basically comic books, but also, I guess, TV shows now and, and, and other stuff uh, that are African-based and now, not just African creators, but based on African uh, law. Um, and when you said that thing about uh, Lauren winning uh, the prize, I was thinking, I'm thinking there's no other continent where you would say, like, if, uh, say, uh, France, a French writer won some kind of uh, award, then, you know, Greek people says, yeah, you're power. Europeans can do it. <laughs> um, so there is yeah. a kind of, I think, a kind, correct me if I'm wrong, or, or you know, a kind of a European, not European, an African 
uh, a way where you see Africa as a whole in one way, uh, where we have, uh, or we are, the world is against us maybe in, against Africa as a whole. And therefore, if one African does it, many Africans can do it. Uh, there's something there about that. That is a very accurate and fair assessment, uh, Guy. And, and, and it's really, I, I think you are, you are spot on with that. And, and, and that is an issue that we have. I mean, we already have this issue where generally I, I will talk to you about African sci-fi, not even just Zimbabwean sci-fi, because if I did that, I would quickly, you know, I would rattle off a couple of writers and that would be me mm. done. And the central problem that, that I look at when we think about fiction is, you know, we talk about the works of art themselves, but they're tied into the state of, of the economy which is most African countries are like really poor. I mean, for example, if for the books that I have out there published, if I didn't earn any royalties from, from the African markets that my work is sold in, which is um, Nigeria, South Africa, Zimbabwe. Um, I know right now my first novel is being pirated in, in, in Kenya. Someone is literally just producing it and, and selling it out there. Is it a good um, feeling that you're being pirated, by the way? I was so happy to find out that first book. I saw a pirated version of my book and I was so happy. <laughs> I'm a bit ambivalent. I, I do realize that even if it was being sold legally, financially, it, it wouldn't make much of a difference to me. And you know, online, you, you start finding these Kenyan readers engaging with, uh, with me and, and, and my work that readers that otherwise wouldn't. And I'll be very honest when, you know, I had a love for, for literature when I was coming up in Zimbabwe, but until I moved over to, to the UK, I never bought a novel, not once, because I just didn't have the money relative to what you had. Novels were so expensive. So we almost have this situation in which yeah, you can get published in Africa. You're not really going to make any money from it, realistically. Um, even if you win awards on the, on the continent, um, and there's several really good um, awards that when you look at the quality of the stories that and, and the books that they've awarded prizes to you, like this stuff is dope. But again, for the general readership, they don't really get that excited about those titles and until it's a western award so in a sense we are plugged into the western market because really it's, it, things only really start happening once you start selling into that market and a lot of it i think is to do with how we manage our economies on on the continent and and most people i mean for for years the rhetoric has, has always been to to blame other people for the state of economies in africa but I mean, Zimbabwe has been independent for 40 years now. You know, a lot of, you know, these other states have been independent for 60 years and, and, and so on. And the economies are in a dire state. Um, I, it's, it's a really difficult one for me because when I look at it objectively, I'm like, um, we've pretty much made our own beds with this. But if you are working on the content, and there's a lot of good quality writers working on the continent, but it's almost impossible to make a living from it. So when you see someone 
almost make it out there, you're kind of like, yeah, this is great, good for them because, you know, you, would you rather be playing for, you know, Manchester United or Liverpool or playing for Dynamos FC in Arare? It's, it's that kind of, of scenario. Yeah. What do you mean by made it your own bid? Um, in the sense that I, I think we are responsible for the state of our economies in Africa through sort of like a lot of the problems that we have are man-made. Uh, and for a while, being Zimbabwean myself, when I listen to a lot of the state rhetoric, there's always someone external to blame. It's, it's the West, it's the British, it's the Americans. Um, but then when you see sort of like what the government officials do, which is embezzling funds or just general incompetence, you're like, okay, if we did everything right and things were still going wrong because of external forces, then you could say, okay, this is definitely something we can pin it down to. Um, but we make poor decisions and the state of the general economy also affects the production of, of art on, on, on the continent. And, and this is something that we have to, to recognize. I've been to sort of like a lot of uh, book events and stuff where we talk about, you know, how can we get people to to read and all that. And, and there's all these like really good ideas and initiatives. But until people have real actual money and you need to build a middle class, that is how you build the market. So uh, until we get that sorted out, uh, this situation will not change. Yeah, I was trying to think historically. I never thought of that point. Historically, what did authors do? when, you know, no doubt there are famous authors from really poor countries uh, in history. But then I remember that reading for the public is a new thing. You know, it's, we can't talk about what happened a thousand years ago because people didn't read. Um, so yeah, it is, I never thought of that. That's interesting. Yeah, that's a very interesting, interesting insight. I, I mean, um, if, if I just look back to post-independence Zimbabwe in 1980, the authors then generally made, a you could make a decent living simply because A, the economy was much better than it is now. And B, if you sold into the school markets, you know, as a set textbook, piracy wasn't as much of an issue as it is now. And the middle class that was there had a bit of disposable income. So you actually find that there were some really successful authors domestically that did pretty well. Um, at the moment now, unless you're selling outside the country, I, I, I don't think you can make anything meaningful from it. Yeah. I think, I think you know, I've been trying to be uh, an author for 30 years now and I've been an author for 20 years, and I, I really do think, you know, and, and speaking as a person who thought he could do nothing but write, like basically I would have to wash dishes my entire life to, 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 to support myself. And I do think the biggest block for authors, uh, and the biggest cause of stress, the biggest cause of anxiety and, and, and distress. And, uh, and also the thing that stops us artistically the most is the fact that we look to, to get financial independence from being in authors and basically artists. Uh, because even if you succeed in one thing, then you, are, you have to create something just 
successful in the next few years or you're out again. And then, and then you are forced to walk in that cycle of uh, contracts from the publishers. And you have to give us, give us one of these a year and give us three of those in the next five years. And that stops the artistic blood from, you know, uh, being good. So the conclusion I've come to over a really long time is, is that I shouldn't try to get money from, I shouldn't expect to get any money from writing. And as long as I have an alternative, I can do whatever I want and be a, a you know, whatever, I was doing it anyway, which is why I had a lot of problems, being artistically uh, as honest as I could. And which ironically is also how I, I got to a point where I think the thing I'm working on really eventually make money, but I don't need it to make money. I think that's a brilliant way of looking at it. Um, and, and even historically, if you think of, I, I don't know, just off the top of my head, Chekhov popped up who was a, who was a doctor, you know. Um, and most authors have done other things. Um, I'm a qualified podiatrist. Um, I'm, I'm pretty fortunate that now, at, at least for what I've got for my work, I've got two or three years where I can pretty much live off my writing just now. Um, which is which is a great position to to be in, yeah. Um, yeah. but th there is always that thing at the back of your mind that will the next work, you know, be good enough to to keep this thing going. And 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 I think you are right that if you just say, will writing be my primary source of income? If if you were to look at it as any other artistic field like acting, we all sort of recognize that it's only a very few really special right. actors that make a living from it. Most, most people who are actors or who are trying to get into it would not make it as, as such uh, the same in sports. When, when we mention our favorite sports people, they are far removed, their reality is far removed from the ordinary sort of um, jobbing athlete, as it were. And, and and writing is, is no different. Um, that is the hope. It would be nice. I mean, we all want to get off the hamster wheel <laughs> of capitalism, of, of, of not having to worry about, about earning your bread. But I do think you are right to point out that one thing that destroys creativity is, is almost this, I don't want to call it a state of entitlement, but this belief that your work should sell somehow and you should have all this money coming to you. I, th I think it's a mix of good fortune and creating genuinely good work, but everything stems from the love of it. One thing I've recognized now, having met a lot of different writers and, and just talking to them and hearing about their experiences, it's, it's always great when I hear from, you know, a writer like you, Guy, who says, I've been doing this for 30 years, right? And for myself, I started writing, I think my first attempt at doing a novel was in 2003. Um, and it was a very bad plagiarism of Dostoevsky's demons transposed into a Zimbabwean setting. At the time, I thought it was a work of monumental genius, but it was really, really bad and it got rejected. But because of the love for the craft, I kept doing it anyway. And I would still keep doing it even if I made nothing from it. I would still generate work, maybe not with the same frequency as I can now, 
but every so often I would return to it and, and do something because it is a passion. It's something that I love doing. And I always feel fortunate when other people connect with, with my own work. I, I always say that I consider myself a reader first and foremost, that I love literature. I love prose. I love the written word. Um, I just happen to maybe be a reader on steroids who creates his own work in, in the hope that whatever it is of that feeling that I've derived from reading other people's work, that really intense connection that I feel to the characters and, and, and the stories I've read that I can maybe induce that feeling in other readers as well. And, and, uh, but you are right. It's the love of the craft that has to come first and everything else will follow off that. Yeah, and the expectation, I think, of the prize at the end when you don't get it causes so much frustration. And it is, I think it is toxic. Very much so. Um, and again, through these conversations that I've had, um, speaking with writers at different stages of their careers at, at, at different levels, you, you do kind of recognize the fact that there is an element of good fortune, but the ones that grind through and quote unquote make it are the kind of characters that regardless of how it's going, I, I had um, um, one guy who obviously I shan't name because it was just a, a, a conversation that we had, who told me that he'd done um, about 10 literary novels and really, you know, been well-reviewed in places, never really had made any money from it, but this was just a thing mm -hmm. that he did. And then at some point in his 50s, he did um, a genre novel, a fantasy novel, and it took off. And then he started doing a bit more genre work and, and he turned around and said, you know, for the first time I've been plugging away for years, but, you know, finally I'm getting compensated for it. But when you speak with someone like that, you know that he would do it anyway because that's just his thing. And and there is there is no shame. There's nothing wrong in, in doing other work. And I've done all sorts of jobs before. I've been, you know, a mover, just doing removals. I've done work in call centers. And, you know, all work is, is legitimate at the end of the day. And that funds funds your life and, and your lifestyle. You, you keep body and soul together and every so often you get a bit of time to, to work on your craft. Yeah. Absolutely. So can you tell, like, can you talk a little bit about how you got here, how you began? That's pretty interesting. Um, now that I look back, there the, the were a few sort of like proto steps um, like in high school, I, I was the member of a, of a writer's club and, and we kind of just wrote our little pieces of juvenilia. I used to read a lot um, all the way from primary school and I was, I was fortunate to go to schools with really good libraries. So I constantly had reading material and I would immerse myself in, in stories. It's, it's one of those funny things that, you know, I, I was the guy who maybe would get, we got caned back when we went to school. Um, if, if, you know, for any offenses, but I would be the guy who might pull out a novel in the middle of math class just to try to read an extra um, chapter and, and get in trouble for it. Um, and, and I think for me, that is the foundation of most writers are very keen readers. 
And then when I moved over to the UK and, and as I alluded before, got into, into the Russians, you know, I felt this is what I want to do. I want to tell stories like this. Um, and at the time, the beauty of being young is, is that overinflated ego and stuff where you think I can just do it and nail it in one. And then you eat a bit of humble pie, <laughs> as you must. And after this is about 2003, you know, I, I, I wrote about four other manuscripts. Let me stop you. Let me go a step back. Who introduced you to the Russians? To sorry? How are you introduced to the Russians? Like it's not to the, the Russians. book you would pick up. So I'm living in, in Reading uh, in 2003. I've, I've just uh, migrated from, from Zimbabwe. The economy has tanked around that that time we have hyperinflation and all sorts of uh, issues going on. So I moved to Reading. Um, I'm, I'm going to college to a little sort of like business college in, in London, but can't really afford to stay in London. So I live out, out in the outskirts in, in Reading. Um, and I'm working night shifts as a cleaner and a carer sometimes. But during the day, you know, I've got a little bit of excess income at the time. Buying a novel was the equivalent of one hour's wages, uh, which was pretty reasonable. So I go into Waterstones, but I'm also searching for, for meaning in my life. Um, I was raised Catholic, but really didn't have the same sort of like connection to the religion that I had had growing up simply because in my family, it was compulsory to engage with it. Um, and you couldn't question the faith or ask anything meaningful about it. So for the first time, I almost had my freedom to step away from that and start asking questions. So, you know, I, I think I was in a bit of an existential crisis and I was reading um, these philosophy and psychology books, sort of popular philosophy, popular psychology. And Dostoevsky kept getting mentioned within these texts, if you think about existentialism and, and, and things like that. Uh, and if you go into psychology, they say some of his ideas are precursors to the work that Freud came up with, right? So at some point I decided to read Dostoevsky and from there you read the introductions to the books. Um, the first one that I read was Crime and Punishment. Yeah. And there you, you start getting yeah. told about the triumvirate um, Tolstoy and, and Turgenev and really started getting into that classic literature. And, and at the time I felt like my mind was being expanded, right? There was a whole sort of like culture and tradition and, and things that I hadn't been, been aware of, an intellectual tradition that I hadn't been aware of before that. And it completely blew my mind, guide. And I really got into, into this stuff. But each book that you read, because you never get the answer. I was searching for answers. But all you could ever get was maybe a referral to someone else who has another idea. And from then on, you just keep moving like that. Um, and then at some point, I felt I had to write it. But, but remember, at, at this period, I'm not really reading contemporary literature. I'm stuck in the classics, right? So by the time I start writing, I'm using dated language, dated tropes. <laughs> the stuff that I'm doing that I think is cutting edge really is, is so backwards. You couldn't publish it now. Um, but that's how I, I, I got into it. And, and after that, um, I started reading slightly more contemporary writers. I, I remember um, sort of just stumbling across um, 
a Booker Prize thing on 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 TV and and being introduced to authors like John McGregor and stuff and think oh my God those are British authors but this is new stuff so I'm now moving through different sections of of the bookstore you know the kind of sections that I'd normally pass over I'm now going into those sections seeking out new works but even then. Um, I was still doing, you know, I was in this imitative phase where if I read something and it appealed to me, I would try to do something very similar, which doesn't always, you know, it, it doesn't really work. Yeah. But that's how writers begin. You have to, that's what we do. We, you copy people you really like, and then slowly you find out to use technique and you get used to writing and then you find your own voice. Exactly. Um, now, I, I hope you're not hearing someone's playing really loud music outside. Um, oh. oh, that's that's good. Yeah, you, you need to have that imitative phase. And, and then gradually, just by doing the work, um, awkwardly, I, I never wrote um, short stories until about 2010. So even then, the, the novel was the main form of expression for me. And as you know, a novel is it's a marathon. But there's certain tricks of the trade that despite reading, because I was doing all this stuff independently and, and I think it's, it's great now for writers who can go to creative writing courses and stuff that maybe you'll be shown the mistakes and the problems with your craft a little earlier than you otherwise would independently. But if, if I look at my earlier works, I couldn't describe a scene to save my life. Just if my character was in the kitchen, it would be the same as if, they were in the living room or outside because I couldn't draw a scene. And, and, and all those little tricks of the trade that help you to immerse the reader within the text, I had to pick them up slowly, bit by bit. And, and I'm happy to admit, even now, I'm still learning. Every time I read something, I'm always trying to find sort of like, you know, the wires. I'm trying to take apart whatever it is that the writer has done to craft their own book. And I, I don't know if you've had this as well, Guy, that, you know, I feel I was a much purer reader back then. Now I, I read very differently from when I was younger. I, I don't know if, if, if you've had that same effect in your career. Because you see the technique behind it, is that why? Yes, and, and, and you see the scaffolding behind the work. Is, is that something that... For me, no, because I remember very distinctly when I was uh, six or seven, reading a Jules Verne book. And I read all, all the ones available at the time. And, um, and I remember that I was analyzing how he got me to turn the page. I was figuring out technique back then. That, at my six? Head, six or seven. Like, wow. I, I, didn't, I learned to read at six, but by, by the second grade I was reading all of the books in the library. So, so by the th by uh, third grade, I think I finished the ones for kids, and and it was a small library. But but I remember analyzing why this thing worked and how he did it. Uh, so, and my head was always working on technique as well, which doesn't mean I got to to great technique at a younger age than I should have. I still had to learn the hard way how to do everything. Um, but um, but my head was 
this was the one thing that my head was figuring out without me knowing it, how stories worked. I think he did it even before I could read and just, uh, you know, when I invented stories in my head back before. But that's unusual. That's, uh, uh, th that is highly unusual. It's, it, it's absolutely amazing. So you've kept up sort of like this mode of reading. This is just how you read text all the way through your life from that age? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I find it, yeah, I find it um, really hard. I remember when we, I learned uh, in the university, I learned theater. I began learning math, which was, and then I moved on to theater because I couldn't not try and one of the teachers there, one of the professors there said, when you're done with the three years here, uh, you will not be able to see a show, to enjoy a show the way you, you used to, because you'll be able to see all the tricks, all the things and all everything that makes up everything, the acting, the directing, the, you know, the scenery, uh, all of that. And I understood that, but anything that had to do with writing, I always looked at it that way. And do you still get immersed in, in the text? Just that pure enjoyment? Yes. The, I, it is hard for me to read for a long time because everything for me is about the thing that excites me. So if it's, it's, about, if it's really good writing, then after two or three pages, I, have to, I, I leap off the, you know, of the, whatever I am and just I have to go and write. Uh, because it got me thinking about this, it got me thinking about this. And it is rare for me to be able to sit down and read for a few hours. Although when I do that, it is such a pleasure because you just, you, you, you lose yourself in that imaginative place in your head. And I enjoy that so much. And, but but I, I rarely go there for a long period of time. And now that I have three kids and a job, and, uh, and so I, I, I'm not able to lose myself for such a long time anyway. Like, I'm, I'm not able to disappear for a few, even for an hour. Uh, but what you speak about there, that, you know, feeling of, of reading something and, and wanting to go and write, um, that's something a lot of people, we don't often talk about that, but you do feel recharged and turbocharged when you read something, it makes you want to, to read. I, I remember when I wrote my first novel, The Hairdresser of Arare, I bought this copy of uh, a book called Independence by a Nigerian author called Sarah Ladipo Manika. And it's this beautiful sort of post-colonial uh, romance that happens in the 60s, just after Nigeria's um, independence. And I was reading it, and then I just got the idea for my own novel. So I used that text as a metronome um, while I was writing The Hairdresser of Ferrari. So I would go off and I would write, you know, whenever I hit the 5,000 word mark, I would go in and read a few chapters of Independence. Yeah. And I did that, <clears throat> referencing her work all the way until I got to the end of, of my book. I mean, even if you look at them, the books are radically different but I still feel somehow like a vampire that I fed off of her words. And even when people talk about writer's block, nowadays, 
Writer's block, sometimes it could be A, you could have external distractions, like we were talking about those problems that you have of earning and living, et cetera. You know, that could be a contributory factor. But minus that, if you are writing and you feel blocked, I don't know if you do this thing I do, Guy, which is just to go off and, and read something. And, and if I read a couple of books or short stories, eventually I get my mojo back. Yeah, I, I used to do that. I eventually learned that every single time I have writer's block is because the back of my mind has noticed I've done something wrong and I haven't yet. So either it's something I did and I missed it, uh, and then eventually my mind will catch up to it, or it's something I'm going to do and it's wrong. And my mind is telling me, no, 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 you can't do that. You have to fix it first and then you do it. So I've learned that when I don't write for a long time, suddenly, for some reason, I can't write. I've learned that it is my brain telling me I missed something. So I don't panic. And I, I don't need inspire. I just need to think about the stuff I did. And then it solves itself. And it doesn't mean it solves itself fast. It could be a puzzle, you know, something doesn't work and it takes a month to figure out how to fix it. Uh, so it's not that easy, but I've, in the beginning, you know, I would panic and I would try to force it. And it never works if you try to force it, you know, because I think your mind needs something if your mind is different than mine and you need inspiration because I'll tell you what, I think sometimes, I think this is a problem with authors that, that write for long periods of time, like if more than a few hours a day. Uh, what happens is you have one section of the book that has this feeling and you're immersed in, 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 you know, this is about A and B and C and D and you have to be in one place to do it. And then you have to move on to the next place. But you're in that place. You have to switch so much to go to that place. You have to disconnect from it and then find the new place and then write from it like an actor. Except the actor is going to do it really quickly because they're not inventing stuff. Um, you just have to be in the new place. And sometimes that stops us and we don't know why. I, I really like what you're saying there about not forcing it. And, and you've also alluded to almost that the effect of, of the subconscious that even though you are doing something, there is a part of your mind that's telling you, no, you've gone down the wrong direction or you're about to go off in the wrong direction and, mm -hmm. and you get that blockage. Um, for myself, even when writing, you know, I, I, I generally, I've got all day to write, but I find I wake up, I go and have a run. This is, this is my thing, especially when the weather is nice and warm. I like to, to go and run. And when I'm running, you know, I feel that Zen thing, but ideas kind of come to me as, as I'm doing that physical activity. And then I go off and, and, and then I, you know, check my emails write for a couple of, of hours until, depending on how it's, it's going, until midday or one o'clock, break off for lunch, and then come back and go over what it is I've, I've written. But do you ever get these days where you have a certain flow, Guy, when oh, there's no. times where it's just on and, and, and you're just in it and, and it just flows? Absolutely. Um... 
sometimes you're asking me a question about let me ask you a question back sometimes when it flows and you write so much like unusually uh, so so much more than you usual you know than your usual pace uh, at the end of that you know those one time I, I wrote so much in a few hours my I felt like I was I've been so exhausted my like maybe like I've taken drugs which I haven't so I can't tell what it's about but uh, my I'm sure that my my pupils were going like this and I just couldn't move. I was physically exhausted at the end of that. Does that happen to you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You, you do feel that, that exhaustion. And when I was starting out and, and, and I had that flow state, I would try to ride it for as long as possible. But now, even when I do experience that flow state, I still know when to stop now. I'll stop myself and say, we'll come back tomorrow. And, but your subconscious and the mind is always working and you might not have the exact same flow that you have, but you will still be able to have a good day's writing. I'm, I'm very sort of conscious of not over ex exerting myself because again, writing is, it's a lot like, like running, you know, when you are practicing and, and you do something and, and there are days where, you still feel, I, I normally do 10Ks and, th and there are days where you feel like I could go longer, but if you did go longer, tomorrow you might not have the satisfying run that, that you're going to get. So in a way, I, I try to create some kind of um, stability in how I write that, yeah, I've still got the energy and it feels good um, and it is flowing. I might do a, a little bit extra, but then I always stop. Um, but one of the things I always like to do when, when I'm in that state is, is, is to have, to go over the work itself as well, just to have my con the conscious part of my mind really analyze what it is we're doing. So that by the time I come back, I'm like, okay, this is what we are doing. Because sometimes th there is that disconnect I, between, you know, you've written something, but I feel sometimes that even I don't quite understand it. And I don't want you know, to make this sound all, all mystical, but there are certainly times when I approach a work and, and I feel, feel I have full mastery of what is on the page. And then there are times where I kind of have to figure it out. And then through figuring it out, I know where to take the story next. Yeah, that happens a lot. It is, the thing about writing is that each time is different. If you are, if you are self-aware enough to listen to yourself, you see that each, each book is different, and each story is different, each character is different, and therefore your, the way you write it has to be different. That is very true, and, and it's especially true, uh, and, and, and you notice these differences, particularly when, if you do work that moves across genre. Um, so for example, if, doing the library of the dead is, 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 is a very different experience from, I've written a, a short story that um, is currently on submissions, which is a piece of, of military sci-fi. Mm -hmm. um, and that you, you almost feel that you're using a, part, a different part of your brain. One of the things that I did, um, you know, when I'd almost 
after my first novel came out, um, I, I really didn't feel I was experiencing much success in terms of my own writing. And I wanted to, to hone my craft. And I thought, what can I do? And, and what I thought of was just working across different genres. So particularly in short fiction, where I've done literary short stories, I've done SFF, and I've also done crime. Um, and the good example is, for me, crime, because I work a little less in it, uh, it really focuses me more on, on, on aspects of just the tightness of, of the plot. And in SFF, I, you know, I'm always looking at the kind of the world building aspect of where my story is, is set. And, and maybe it's a cliche in literary fiction, you maybe lean a little bit more on, on characterization, but those jumps through working in those three different genres, even though I, I find whenever I then particularly do work now, I increasingly use techniques that I've learned from one genre into, into the other work. So the Library of the Dead has a mystery setting and, and a crime and an investigation. And these are things that I picked up through working in crime. So what I hear you saying, is the way I would phrase it, is whatever you've learned so far is part of you now. So into the next thing, you take everything you've learned. So it's not that if you go into a new genre, you have to forget the stuff you learned from your genre. It's, it's part of you. And you can. it's who you are, and therefore your books are your own. That's 100% uh, correct. And... And increasingly, as, as time has gone on, I'm getting a better sense of, of my own sense of style, of, of how I go about crafting sentences. Um, you know, even with things like voice, I can I know there is almost like uh, a default Tendai Huju type of, of voice in how I would approach things. Um, you know, that would be, if, if I was just told to, to write something, that would almost be the default mode in which I work. Um, obviously, for different different um, projects, you might need something radically different from what you normally normally would work within. And, and I am able to then say, okay, this is what I'm trying to do with this particular project. And so I will move away from that and try something else. But I've also become you know, a little more aware of, of areas where I have deficiencies. Uh, and that's particularly important because one thing I've realized wherever I've been deficient, I, I said earlier on that I couldn't draft scenes just, you know, to describe the room, to, to, to paint the world in, in words. But over time, I've, I've picked up that ability and, and, and learned from it. Um, my personal preference is to be a little spare with it to allow the story to go to go forward. But if there's need for extended descriptions, I mean, the, the, I've read writers who can just pretty much go on about it page after, in fact, their, their work consists of, of nothing but that. It's, it's certainly not something that I could do, but when I read from those writers, I always pinch things that I can integrate in, in, into my own work. And, and that's how it goes. And, and I don't think that will ever stop. Yeah, uh, it's interesting that you said voice because I think one of the strongest, one of the first and strongest things I pick up reading your stuff is the voice. The voice uh, is, is of the character is very, very 
strong. And, uh, and I want to ask you about that, and even specifically about the fact uh, of using uh, women or female characters as the, the leads. Like, why did you choose to do that? To do that? It's a question I often get, and I finally I get to ask someone else. Yeah, that's, that's a tricky one because for the hairdresser of Harare, the, the first novel that I did, it, it was sort of spontaneous. For this particular novel, um, the, the story in, in, in the Book of World SF would be Ghost Stalker. So the Library of the Dead is actually derived from that voice in, in, in that story that you read, Guy. And, and that voice really stayed with me, you know. And I, I think I, I have a preference for characters that are underdogs that do a lot of uh, social observation. So, for example, if, if you are, underdogs? you know. I missed the word there. Uh, underdogs. What's that mean? Uh, oh, that's, uh, the underdog is, is almost oh, the underdog. person at the yeah, bottom. The right. hierarchy. Didn't hear that right. That's okay. right. Underdogs, okay. No worries. People at the bottom uh, in the hierarchy of society, because I think one of the things is if, if you're at the top, there is certainly things that you don't notice. Um, so, for example, when I was, you know, living in Zimbabwe as, as a man um, and in the dominant majority that runs the country, there were a lot of things that I just didn't notice because I didn't have to in, in that particular space that having moved here where you occupy a different position in the social hierarchy, you start noticing things that you didn't see before. So I gravitate towards um, female characters because for me, they kind of, they're able to have these kind of social observations that maybe a male character might ignore. Um, I also really like the fact that, um, for example, when I work with those characters, um, the way that they solve problems might be a bit different from if, say, I had a big, strong male detective, you know, in, in, in this particular book, how he might solve problems might be radically different from how sort of like a, a young girl who is physically vulnerable deals with them. So, so you become a little bit more, more creative um, in that sense. And it's very enjoyable. It's, it's one of those things that I often wonder about nowadays um, with the conversations that you have around uh, literature about who gets to, to write what story. Um, and, and I think that's a problem because I, I feel that more and more we are moving to a place where authors are no longer allowed to imagine something other than themselves. And, and if it carries on, we might just end up having maybe semi-autobiographical fiction will be the only sort of legitimate kind of fiction that you can write. So I will only write um, about characters that are kind of like me, you know, male Zimbabwean writers that are pushing 40. And you, you would only write about characters sort of like Israeli characters because the conversations around that are just ridiculous these days, um, you know, certainly, when I think about uh, my first novel that featured uh, a gay lead character, I would think twice about doing it now these days because the question is, well, who are you? Why do you get to write this particular character if, if, if you're not in those same circumstances? 
and and I think that's that's a loss for you know for literature. Well, don't you think it's it's I think it's actually a responsibility to write a wide variety of people and certainly a wider variety of uh, uh, to to introduce different the stories of different people uh, to the readers. I think the main, at least for me, the main, um, the main, the main thing I would do di- that I do do differently today than year, years ago is that I would research more. Like I would actually talk to people. With the time I didn't want to talk to anyone. I can just imagine what it's like to be like that, and and rely on the stuff I've read. Uh, I would talk to people and get the more subtleties uh, out. Make sure I didn't do something really stupid, basically. Uh, but I think it's our responsibility to to be different and not to listen to any anything that might sound wrong to our ears, uh, even though it is in vogue. Uh, I agree with that because literature is really the the antidote to solipsism in which your reality is the only one single valid sort of like version of, of, of reality that you are the most real visceral um, thing in existence. And, and literature demands that we imagine something other than, than ourselves. And, and what you're saying about research is, is exactly, it's, it's spot on. Um, it is true. And there also has to be a recognition that uh, maybe your version of a female character is going to be different from my version of a female character, which is going to be different from maybe another female, a female character's version of a female character, that there is sort of like room for a diverse number of, of different characters. Obviously, if, if, if you are sloppy and your stuff isn't well-researched, um, you know, that is bad writing. And, and when the writing is bad, uh, people will tell you, it is bad. Um, the, the, there's always a, a feedback mechanism, which is this horrible thing called the review. But to even suggest that authors shouldn't try to, to cross those lines and imagine and experience outside of their own, I, I think is, is, is complete and utter, utter nonsense, yeah. I think I remember the one thing that stuck in my head. Uh, I, I don't usually like to say bad things about uh, people, but they're in one of the Rama books, um, uh, I think Gentry Lee wrote it and maybe Gentry Lee and, and someone else. Like Arthur C. Clarke wrote the first one and then uh, other people continued it. And in the introduction to that, there's probably think something about a pregnant woman uh, in, in, the, in the book, if I remember correctly. And in the introduction, they say, you know, we spoke to our wives for a few hours, something like that. And now we understand women. And you can hear the, the, the lack of understanding in how they phrase that and the arrogance of it and the, 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 anyway, that really annoyed me. So there's a way to research and get it wrong also. You know, you have to understand that all humans are humans and that everyone is like you, basically, more or less on some kind of variation. Yeah, because... The research alone, if, if, if you lean too much into it, you also miss that key thing that you say, Guy, which is the human element. 
So my question will always be, what is, who is the character as a person? Um, for example, in the Library of the Dead, I have uh, Priya, who is um, a young girl in a wheelchair. But for me, if, if, if I just look at that and research the experience of being a wheelchair user, I will always default to a certain kind of stereotype, right? Because I'm missing who the actual character is. But when I did it, I, I think the first thing that I wrote in her, she was, you know, on a chair upside down on the ceiling. And I quickly realized that she is a thrill seeker and an adventurer. This is her personality. Mm -hmm. And that is sort of like what drives her. So when she's in a dangerous situation with uh, Ropa, the lead character, who tends to be a little bit more cautious, Ropa seems to get some kind of thrill from being, um, Priya seems to get some kind of thrill from being in that situation. So the character work, um, the recognition that you are trying to write someone who is human is, is the most important thing. And, and I think when you get the character right, even if you miss out little details that you could really research, maybe it is the specs of, or, you know, on a wheelchair and things like that. I think readers will forgive that more than if you get those right, but still end up with a flat, empty, um, meaningless type of character. Yeah. Yeah. That is a, that we, we've been talking to an hour, a bit more than an hour, so that is a good note to end on. I'm trying to keep the episodes down to an hour. The conversation with you has been a joy. Uh, is there anything you want people to know, to read now, to send them to a specific... Maybe I'll, I would like them to know about my novel, The Library of the Dead, which we've uh, touched on in, in this conversation. I'm also doing edits at the moment for the sequel, which will be called Our Lady of Mysterious Elements, which is slated for spring of, of next year. But if I can live with a recommendation of a good book that I've read recently, which is um, She Who Became the Sun, by Shelley Parker Chan, which is an excellent um, work set in China during the Mongol invasions. It's, it's an outstanding novel. Is it historical or science fiction? It is a fantasy. It's a, it's a, it's a historical fantasy novel, yeah. I'll check it out. Very well done. It's, it's, it's about a young girl whose brother dies and she takes on his, his fate and she goes on to try to pretty much become emperor of China, which isn't something girls did back in, in those days. Sure. Well, taking on someone's fate is a big thing. That it is, uh, that it is. But um, I know we're trying to keep this under an hour, but I've enjoyed this conversation immensely, Guy. I, I think we could keep going over a beer. <laughs> For another two or three hours. I'm taking Dora. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I'd love to talk to you again. It has been. Thank you fun. so much for having me. Thank you. And so nice to meet you and so nice to talk to you. It's an absolute pleasure. And and, and I'll be looking out for, for your work as well. And and you know, when I read something, I, I always send an email about it if I if I can, you know, if I can get in touch with the author. That's, reaching out is really nice. Uh, I think most authors would appreciate, you know, you know 
someone is honestly coming to contact them and talk to them about their work. If you want, I can send you, I can send you like uh, an ebook or a story, uh, uh, a book in ebook form, if you want. And absolutely no. No, no, please no do. Need I mean, to, read it, it, to read it or to uh, feel free to hate it. Oh, no, not at all. Is it available for me to, to purchase on, you know, mm -hmm. even on, on Amazon or something like that? Because it is out of print, but maybe in. It, there's a book called, like, I would recommend to you um, uh, Secret Thoughts, which I can just send to you. It's not that I'm going to make money from it anyway. So if you want, I can just send you, a, if you don't mind reading an electronic version. I, I don't mind at all. I don't mind at all. I, I would love to, to read it um, because even when you emailed me, I started thinking and, and, and started thinking that I only knew of, of La Vitida, so I, I didn't even know a lot about sort of like Israeli sci-fi and fantasy. I thought this might be a good opportunity to sort of get more into, into finding out, you know, the I, literature I, I, there. I don't really fall into that category because aside from, because uh, which I write in English, I get translated into Hebrew. Uh, uh, people have had a really hard time taking me in as an Israeli author, but on the other hand, the world is seeing me as an Israeli author because uh, I'm, I'm not dealing... So I always take into account that I have two audiences, which is the Western American type of audience and the Israeli audience. Mm -hmm. So my books are written and stories for both those people, sometimes in different ways, uh, but for both of them. And how do you find that in, in, in terms of how the two different audiences approach the works and, and how they read them? Well, like we said, like in the beginning, when I began, like uh, when I was 20 something, actually 20, uh, I wrote my plays in Hebrew, completely about the society, but I wrote my prose in English for the Americans. So my plays were about women, which is... Uh, where I felt my strongest connection. My science fiction to the Americans were about white, straight men. Uh, and, and that is, but I also knew that Israelis would have no problem and enjoy reading American science fiction. So I also, I basically, like in, I think the first book I wrote was about, which, it, it's brilliantly plotted and it's not good enough. It's, it's terrible. Like, I, I can't read it. But, um, but it was about a person. It was about the myths that exist in both, um, in both places that come from the Bible, but in no way are, is a religious book from the First Testament. Um, like it was about someone who, you know, as an experiment at the university was hypnotizing people and convince and telling them what they'll see in their past lives and then having them fill in the holes of stuff he didn't tell them to prove that the mind can invent anything. And then two people, two different people who don't know each other, fill in the holes in exactly the same way, in a way that no one would ever do. Like it's not, it can't be a coincidence. And that sentence in down a rabbit hole where maybe there was something, maybe there is a past life, 
and they're both somehow remembering the same thing. And he brings them back to the past life and the past life. And they keep being right. And then he, bring, he goes all the way back, like good science fiction, to biblical stuff. And when we find out there's a kind of conspiracy with the things that appear like angels and stuff like that. And, and you mess with the myths that exist in both, uh, uh, in basis of both societies. That sounds so trippy and, and technically complicated because the, there is almost the, the time element of, of handling the different lives, but there's also the psychological element. Yeah, does. yeah I would love to read that simply uh, you know, because of the technical. <laughs> I'll send you something better though, if you don't mind. I, I can also, I don't even know if I have it, but I can send you stuff that's better than that. Please do, please do. And if I ever do wind up in, in Israel, I'll give you a shot. Which part are you in? Well, it, it actually, I'm near Jerusalem, but it actually doesn't matter. It's such a small country. That, you know, uh, anywhere you are, it's like a few, at the most, a few hours uh, drive. Uh, it's a place that I've, I've, I've always wanted to, to visit. Um, you know, everyone wants to go to Israel just to see, you know, um, because of the history. Um, for me, despite the fact that I've, I've told you I am a lapsed Catholic and that um, the Bible still plays an important role in my development because it was a text that I read so much that you do find little bits sipping into your work. You, you can never sort of like escape that. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's very, it, those are very powerful words. And even though, for example, I don't believe in any, of it and any God, uh, you cannot ignore the fact that they these things are really powerful. They're sometimes really powerful storytelling, uh, uh, especially in, in uh, the, the original testament, um, uh, because it has so many types of stories that have survived for such a long time. While uh, the New Testament speaks for about about something more uh, specific and. Sometimes, you know, when I, I, I also understand why people believe in God. And sometimes when I write, you know, when you're really on fire, you feel like God is talking through you because there's no way you could do that. It comes out so perfectly that, you know, it's not you. But I know that God isn't talking through me. It's just, it just feels like it. And those, I can use those feelings in stories. I can. I can accept those feelings and talk about them. And when you use them, I, I believe the reader feels them as well. You know, sure. I, I, I definitely know that when you do that, you, you convey emotion so well. Ultimately, you know, whatever we can say about plots and the like, the books that stay with you is the ones that make you feel a certain way. And those old stories, um, they make you feel something when you read them. Yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah, I think my biggest problem with some of the uh, early science fiction, actually today we think about there's a lot of it. It was very uh, racist and misogynist and other stuff. But the lack of emotion there, the, the complete lack of, you know, this is my brain is the only important thing that exists and 
I'll just give you puzzles or thoughts and emotion is a huge part of being human. And I think in art, so I, uh, I really find that I can't read anything that doesn't have uh, emotion in, on every page. I'm talking specifically about science fiction and that's not a problem with regular you know, prose. It's a problem with science fiction. That is very true. That is very true. You've got to feel something. Ultimately, whatever gizmos or you know speculation that that you put through. I, I j- just yesterday, my my partner and I we went to watch um, Old by M Night Shyamalan, and and the concept of of, of that movie uh, is you know about people going to this beach where you age really 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 quickly. Um, I yeah. And, and I think where he succeeds with that is, is just the drama, the interpersonal drama. You've got one guy who's you know about to divorce his wife and she'd found someone else. You have them also coping with their kids that are rapidly growing. And, and I think when you have kids, I, I don't have kids myself, but I, I know there was a lot of friction and things going on as, as you're becoming older and more independent and, and things like that with, with my own parents. And it's those little points of con- conflict and sort of like emotional turmoil that, you know, and, and even sort of like just the pure horror of people realizing that they're going through this, which is the horror of life, right? We're all getting older and we know we are chugging towards the end. I think he managed to convey that pretty well, even though the ending was a bit, you know. No spoilers. Uh, no spoilers, but it, it's... It's a good, I think he, he did quite a lot of good character work in it. And the concept itself could have been poorly handled. It might have been all oh, shock or out, you know, people yeah. growing old quickly and, and that's all there is to it. Yeah. Oh, he's good. He's good with emotion. Uh, um, uh, he did it in the sixth sense. And uh, mm-hmm. I don't know what is it called, The Lady in the Lake or The Lady from the Pool, or the one with the woman who comes. Uh, uh, from the water. That one, that one, I haven't watched that one. Yeah. Watch that one. And less so uh, with the, oh, I forgot what it's called, the, the one based on the animated series. Is, is that uh, Unbroken or the, the one with Bruce Willis? Unbreakable? Oh, I didn't see Unbroken. I didn't see the one with Mel Gibson. I saw the one based, you know, why didn't I see those? Um, no, there was the one based, oh, now the, the sequel, I, oh, The Last Avatar. Uh, ah, I, I didn't watch that one. There was, the series was called, I think, Avatar, The Last Avatar. And I, re- I like the sequel series uh, even more, even though I can't remember its name either. Um, and the, the movie was not at all good, uh, but I did see it because I like the series. And, and you know, if it's science fiction or fantasy, I'm, I'm, I'm watching it, yeah. And also, it was M. Night Shyamalan, so, you know. so yeah, it, that was the draw to, to old, but uh, this time I, I wasn't really disappointed. Um, so yeah, but but I think. I was listening to a, to a review. I always do this after the movie. And, and, and the reviewer did point out that with him, you always get something unique and, and a bit different, even though it's it's hit or miss. He has his hits. Uh, sometimes he, 
he'll do something that's not particularly great, but at least he gives you what feels like a unique experience. Um, and from the ones that I've watched, I've, I've, I've had that feeling of him. Yeah. yeah. Good. Uh, I, um, speaking of Russian, then I, I'm going to let you go. Uh, for Russians, the guy I like the most is Tolstoy. That, that's the one that I connect to the most. I'm, I feel that emotionally he's the most like me. And so I really enjoy writing it. Uh, I think emotionally and, and and even technically as as a craftsman, obviously we're reading these things in in translation. Yeah. Um, but for me, with with Dostoevsky, it's it's just his his characters and just how messed up they are. That's what really sort of gets gets me going when it comes to to Dostoevsky with. With Tolstoy, some of his stuff is on the money. Like if you read Resurrection, which is pretty much, there's a lot of thoughts about land reform, which was a big problem for Zimbabwe post-independence when, when most of the land was in the hands of, of sort of like the former British settlers. And when I read that, I was like, this stuff is from 19th century Russia where, you know, really they are thinking about then it was, you know, the, the, the serfs and, he was thinking about giving them land and you had the aristocrats that had a lot of land and things like that. And I thought Tostoy was pretty much talking about modern Zimbabwe in that particular book. So, you know, when you're really good, you talk to everyone. Right? 100%. Yeah. I really, it is, as you can see, we can talk, uh, we can talk forever. I really love talking to you, but I do have to, I, I have to end the episode. I have to end it. And it's 11, almost 11.30 for me, uh, PM. It's a bit late. I mean, thank you so much for, for inviting me on this. I, I have really enjoyed this conversation, Kai. And, and I hope we do get to, to do it again sometime. Absolutely. Thank you for having We can, absolutely. And I'll send you the book too. And uh, feel free to hate it and not read it. Please do. I'll read it. it. It might take me a few weeks because I'm doing edits at the moment, but I, I will get into it and, and send you a little email afterwards. Thank you, but you do not have to. There's no feeling of like, I don't invite people to send them stuff. That is not the case. I just get the vibe of you that you really mean it. So I'll send it to you. Well, I, 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 would, I would love to because... I, I always like this feeling, you know, when, you know, I've got my to read list and stuff, but when something comes in that hadn't been on my to read, I'm usually pleasantly surprised. So, yeah. Yeah. so I will definitely read it. I would love to. It's, it's, it's an honor and a privilege. I, I will send you and then I'll go to sleep. Thank you very much for this conversation. And I'm so glad I met you. Thank you very much, Guy. And you night. have a nice evening. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much to Tenda Uchu for the time and the fascinating conversation. It was a joy to speak to him. And I must say this is a trend with guests on this podcast. So as far as I'm concerned, I'm doing something really well. Uh, picking strangers <laughs> that I've never spoken to and asking them questions. And turns out that works really good. Good strangers. Good strangers. So if you want to know more about Tendai, his Twitter is at TendaiHucho, which is at twitter.com, uh, you know, Tendai, T-E-N-D-A-I, 
H-U-C-H-U. And that's where you can find him. Now, next time, you're not going to believe it, but in two days, we continue the streak of great guests. So stick around for that. I won't tell you more, as usual. Geekdom in Powers releases three episodes a week on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. If you want to contact me about this episode, other episodes, future episodes, last episodes, uh, whatever, to suggest more guests maybe or for any reason, email me at guy.hasson, that's G-U-Y dot H-A-S-O-N, like nerd, at geekdominpowers.com. Check out the website, geekdominpowers.com. Uh, Twitter and Instagram, at geekdominpowers. No hyphens or spaces. We're also on TikTok. So uh, check out on Instagram and TikTok. I put on, probably Twitter, I put on uh, video excerpts from uh, the interviews. So check that out. My name is Guy Hasson, and I will see you in the next episode. For now, have an empowered day.